Cleves, Chapter 12 We moved north, staying at Gainsborough Hall for a few days, then crossing the River Humber into Yorkshire. All of us from London were a little nervous at being so far north. The local people had a strange accent, which we couldn't understand, and although it was the summer, we shivered in our silks and satins and had to dig out our fur-lined coat cloaks for warmth. The green hills that we rode through were full of sheep grazing, and the occasional structure that I was told was a mine shaft. Here was where they dug up the precious coal destined for the fireplaces of the wealthy. Pontefract Castle was a grim old place, although they had decorated it well for our arrival. There were flags and pennants hanging from the ramparts, a fountain that had been primed with red wine, and many small, brightly coloured pavilions in the grounds. I knew that just four years ago, this castle had been in the hands of the northern rebels. Defeated, many of them had been put to death, including Thomas Darcy, the then holder of the castle. For the last few years, it had stood empty. Now it was part of the royal estates, and every effort had been made to erase the violence of the past. The once deserted chambers had been filled with tapestries and oak tables, beds and chairs. The cold ovens of the kitchens had been burning again, filling the air with the scent of roasted meat. The great hall was warmed by a huge fire, glinting on the silver tankards on the tables. As with most royal residences, the king and queen had different quarters. The king's tower was at one end of the hall, with the queen's tower on the other. Both towers had presence chambers at their foot and private rooms above. Unlike in other palaces, there was no access from one tower to the other, except through the great hall. Maybe that played a part in what happened, because the queen believed herself safe from prying eyes. I don't know. Maybe not. She was a wild little thing, and she was desperate for some entertainment. We stayed at the castle for two weeks, while final preparations were being made for the king's entry into York. There were church services and a hunt, dances and pageants. As before, I took no part in the public events. I was simply employed to sit with Queen Catherine when she prepared for the day, when she rested and when she retired. After the stiffness of every day and the endless conversations with local worthies, Queen Catherine became giggly in the privacy of her own tower. She would call for more wine and keep me up until all hours of the night, playing while she and her ladies danced. The older ones she would excuse, and one by one they would all slip off to bed, leaving only Lady Rochford. She, being widowed, did not have a husband to go to bed with and enjoyed the late night partying. 
it seemed as if she and the Queen were two young girls together, leading each other on. Tell me who you love to the ends of the earth, Catherine would demand. Tell me who you really want. Lady Rochford would mention a name and then challenge the Queen to do the same. Henry Howard for me? Who for you? Who makes you juicy? Catherine doubled over with laughter, clutching her knees, crying merrily. Wouldn't you like to know, my lady? Wouldn't you like to know? I know already, Katie, so you'd better treat me right, cos you depend on me. She was drunk, slurring her words, but there was a kind of threat in there. I felt very uncomfortable. I didn't want to be present when the Queen and her friend were discussing men. It felt too dangerous, especially for me, a simple musician. I remembered Mark Smeaton, another musician from Queen Anne's household, who had been tortured and hanged when Cromwell fabricated the charges of adultery against her. I didn't want to be part of this. I put down my lute and spoke softly to the Queen. Your Majesty, I'm sorely tired. I can play but ill so late. May I retire? Queen Catherine looked annoyed. I was breaking protocol by asking to retire, but then she shrugged her shoulders. Just one more, cat, while Lady Rochford fetches my nightcap. Lady Rochford giggled and got up, smoothing out her skirts. Nightcap indeed, my lady. I reluctantly picked up the lute and started to play. I was almost willing myself to miss the notes, and I did. Lady Rochford shot a glance at me and went out of the chamber, her feet tapping on the stairs below. Catherine lay back on the bed and started to hum along tunelessly. At last I finished, and as I was getting up, I heard Lady Rochford in the distance. I picked up my lute, curtsied to Catherine and left. The door closed behind me and I walked carefully down the steep stairs, wanting desperately to get away as soon as possible. It was too late. As I rounded one corner, I came across Lady Rochford, her skirts held up while she climbed the stairs. Behind her, his face hidden in the flickering light of the torch, was the young man I had seen in Lincoln, so handsome and so beautifully dressed. His blue velvet cloak, lined with fur, brushed against me as he passed. He looked excited, but also afraid. They didn't speak, just stood to one side while I passed them. I didn't look behind me. I just picked up my skirts and ran. I was desperate to reach the hall where there were people. There were still a few guards awake, drinking ale, and they teased me. Where have you been, pretty maid? Stealing off to see your lover, maybe? Working like you should be, I snapped back. But I was glad they'd seen me. Whatever Queen Catherine was doing with her young man, I was not there, and this had been registered. I was now convinced that Queen Catherine was up to mischief. The problem was that she wasn't any more a slip of a girl who had fallen in love with someone she shouldn't. She was the Queen of England and the wife of Henry VIII. 
any adventures could become very dangerous. I went over the two times I had seen the young man with her. First, they'd been in Lady Rochford's chamber, obviously talking privately. Unwise, maybe, but I had to admit I'd seen nothing wrong. Second, he had been going to her chamber, brought up by Lady Rochford. This was more troubling. Why would he be going to the Queen's chamber so late? Why were they meeting again at night, when public meetings were possible all through the day? I remembered Catherine Willoughby's words of warning. Was it possible that our Queen was having an actual physical affair with another man? Not platonic, not chivalric, but physical. I could barely believe it. Surely they knew the risk they were running. Anne Boleyn had been falsely accused with no evidence. So what would be the reaction of the king when he learnt that his wife had actually been meeting with a young man? And what would happen to those members of staff who had known or suspected what was going on? I wondered about talking with Catherine Willoughby, but was afraid that she might tell the king. I couldn't bear to have the blood of Queen Catherine, that foolish young girl, on my hands. I resolved that I would do anything to avoid playing for her late at night. Illness, extreme tiredness, maybe I could even get away with pregnancy. But I would have nothing to do with whatever was going on. I could not take the risk. At last we came to York. The king and queen riding through the gates, preceded by the trumpeters, pipers and drummers, and a heavy guard of short soldiers. Waiting for them in the shadow of the great gate was a large group of men, looking anxious, their velvet robes blowing in the chilly breeze. Our procession halted, and the king rode to the front, where he could look down upon these men. One started to speak, haltingly. Your Majesties, welcome to York. The king stared at him, then roared. So speaks the false tongue of treachery. But four years ago, you admitted the cruel and unchristian rebels through this very gate. You betrayed your king, and there can be no forgiveness. While the men looked up at him anxiously, his train were unconcerned. Exactly the same thing had happened in Lincoln. Get down on your knees, the king shouted at the men and his guards stood to attention. No one was going to disobey this order. They grovelled in the dirt of the street, while the king lambasted them for their many and terrible misdoings. At last he paused, and his voice became gentler. But I am a Christian king, and I love my subjects dearly. If I can see evidence forthwith, of sincere repentance, I may pardon you. A large velvet pouch was produced and handed up to Henry, the man bowing and then retreating to the ground. The king looked inside it and then handed it to a young gentleman just behind him. I was watching carefully and I realised that I had seen the young man before. I recognised his handsome face and the blue fur-lined cloak he was wearing. It was the man who I had seen with Queen Catherine. He was obviously a close attendant to the king. Later, when I asked, I was told his name was Thomas Culpepper, 
and that he was from Kent. Out of the love I bear you all, I will be merciful. Rise, citizens of York, and make your city ready for us. We will hold our court here. The men scrambled to their feet and led the king through the streets to the abbot's lodgings, where the royal party was to stay. The people were out to see them, but the cheering was subdued and the faces blank. We were not welcome. Despite this, we stayed for some weeks in York. By this time, most of the court were sick of the progress. They wanted to be home in their own grand houses and lands. They were tired of crowding into inns and their servants complained about living in tents. For a while, a rumour went round that the king was planning a coronation for Queen Catherine in York. This would set the seal on her queenship and at the same time remind the North of the power of the Tudors. The cooks and victuallers had been instructed to find new supplies and fine clothes were arriving from London. However, nothing happened. Catherine continued to charm the local people who even started to cheer when she appeared but there were no announcements made. I was playing for her one afternoon when she was called to her chamber for a fitting for a new gown. I picked up my lute and asked if she would need me again that day. Casually, as if she was discussing the possibility of a hunt, she said, Go, cat, and rest. Tomorrow I may need you to play for the King and Queen of Scotland. She swept out of the room, leaving me and the other women open-mouthed. Was this why we were cooling our heels in York? Not for Catherine, but for a meeting with the Scottish king. It made sense. After all the trouble in the north, the king would want to guarantee that the Scots would not take advantage. And what better plan than to meet the son of his sister in an atmosphere of grand family amity? So that was why York was buzzing with activity and royal messengers came and went so often. I was surprised that Catherine had told me, but she must have been sure that this meeting was going to happen and she intended me to be part of it, maybe to play for her and the Scottish Queen, Mary of Guise. I remembered the field of cloth of gold where I had seen the French King and Queen it was exciting to think I might be seeing another meeting that would go down in history. Before I slept, I spent some time working out what pieces might be suitable to play for the two queens. I had no Scottish pieces, but the Scottish queen was French, and I had plenty of those. The days passed. There were hunts and pageants and solemn services in the Minster. Gradually, the air of suppressed excitement started to ebb away. I heard whisperings that the King and Queen of Scotland were in mourning for their two sons who had recently died. Knowing as I did what it was like to lose a child, my heart went out to them. Of course, we all knew death and we tried to carry on as normal, but the death of children is hard indeed to bear. I guessed then that what had been an unlikely event was now almost impossible. The month tipped into September 
with colder mornings and a chilly breeze. The court would soon have to leave York if its progress wasn't to get bogged down with the mud and rain of autumn. I heard that the king was increasingly irritable. Indeed, Queen Catherine started to spend much of her time in her own apartments, where she entertained other young members of the court. Thomas Culpepper was part of that group, but I saw nothing amiss. There was laughter and flirting among the courtiers, but it was all in public, and so far as I could see, Queen Catherine went to bed alone. I had still heard nothing from London. My anxiety was mounting. Why hadn't Lady Anne told me what was happening with my family? I knew she was a kind woman, so all I could think of was that she wasn't in contact with them. And if she wasn't looking after them, how were they surviving? Will was angry and hurt, but I felt that he was allowing that to overcome the need to look after our children. And why didn't he think about me? I was also hurt and grieving for our baby. It was not my doing that I had been forced back into working at court. I had done it to rescue Will, and that, I knew, made it hard for him to take. One afternoon, I was playing for a small number of courtiers. There was the Queen, Lady Rochford, Thomas Culpepper, and several others. Some of them were playing cards, and there was some swearing and laughter. Queen Catherine turned her torchlight eyes on me. Cat, I'm tired of cards. Let us dance. Your Majesty, I need to fetch some more music, I replied. She nodded and waved at me to go. I hurried away to the chamber where I'd left my things, together with the other servants. I did not want to keep the, king, the Queen waiting. But as I came into the chamber, I was stopped by a messenger. Cat Cook! I have a message for you. He pulled a folded paper out of his doublet and handed it to me. I noticed it had the Lady Anne's seal and grabbed it from him. Hold on, anything for my trouble? He was annoyed. I dug into my pouch, found a couple of pennies and handed them to him. He didn't look happy, but he sniffed and turned away. I tore open the letter. Dear Mistress Cat, it read, I send you greetings from Richmond. We are all in good health and the children are enjoying hunting chestnuts in the woods. Every day they sing for me. They are musical like their mother. Tom is work, working a little in the kitchen garden and he makes sweetmeats every week. Jane looks after the children who are all growing well. Will has left here. I do not know where exactly he is, but he has said he will return. I pray for you every night, dear cat, and look forward to your return. Your affectionate friend, Anne of Cleves. I read the letter again. At least I knew that Tom, Jane and the children were all right. But where was Will? Why was he letting his stupid pride stop him from accepting the Lady Anne's generosity. I crumpled the letter up and pushed it into my pouch. On the one hand, it had assuaged my anxiety about the family, but on the other, it had magnified it as far as Will was concerned. If only I could get back soon, 
then I could go and find him. I knew where he worked, where he had met fellow lawyers. But stuck here in York, it was impossible. I suddenly realised that I'd been standing still for several minutes. The Queen would be wondering where I was. I went to get some music from a chest in the corner and then rushed back to the presence chamber. The rooms were crowded with a local delegation of merchants with petitions for the king, so I decided to take a shortcut through the passage used by the servants. It was dark, narrow and damp, but nobody cared that much about servants' comfort. I felt relieved as I neared the door that led into the Queen's chamber, but just before I rounded the corner, I heard voices. They were whispering, but I could hear them perfectly. A man's voice. I love you, Mistress Culpepper. She murmured a reply. Not so much as I love you, Master Culpepper. There was a little giggle, and then I heard them kissing. I want you, Catherine. I want you tonight. The man's voice was urgent, insistent. The woman replied passionately. I cannot wait till then, darling. Last night was so, so wonderful. I've not felt like this before. I realised the woman was Queen Catherine. Her musical voice was unmistakable. All I want is to be Mistress Culpepper. I want to be your wife. I was suddenly drenched in shock. This was treason I was overhearing with a little girl's voice. I wheeled around and ran back through the passage, back into the main hall, elbowing my way through the wool merchants and the coal merchants, and at last reached the Queen's chamber. Lady Rochford greeted me. Where have you been, Cat? You took so long. The Queen has gone to look for you, because she couldn't wait. I'm sure she couldn't, I muttered. What did you say, Cat? Lady Rochford may not have caught it, but she knew it was disrespectful. My apologies, your, your ladyship. I was detained by a messenger. No bad news, I hope. Lady Rochford delivered this languidly. She didn't really care. No, no, and I have the music now. I settled myself down again and started to play. Queen Catherine reappeared. Her face looked soft and there were strands of hair escaping from underneath her hood. She held up her hand to stop me playing. Cat, why did you keep us waiting? I've been looking everywhere for you. I noticed Thomas Culpepper slip back into the room, looking well satisfied with himself. I started to apologise, but she impatiently waved her hand again. Just play now, mistress. We have waited long enough. And so I played while they danced. It was fortunate that I knew the music well, as my mind was all over the place. I had now overheard the Queen and Culpepper planning an assignation. I could not continue to turn a blind eye. I must either inform someone or get away from the court. I couldn't risk becoming involved with the dangerous game the Queen and Culpepper were playing. So what should I do? I could not just leave, as travel alone was dangerous and my action would look very suspicious. I decided I would have to trust Catherine Willoughby, the Duchess of Suffolk, and ask her to help me. I needed someone powerful to help me get out of this mess. 
and then a nagging worry about Will came back to me. In the name of God, why had I fallen in love with this man? I had to get back, if only to try and find him and try to help him mend. The next morning, I approached Catherine Willoughby in the Great Hall. I dropped her a deep curtsy, as befitted her rank, and asked her if I could speak with her. Seeing my face, she immediately agreed. Ladies, you must excuse me for a moment. I have some business with this maid. The women with her looked a little surprised, but then continued their conversation. Catherine led me out of the hall and out into the gardens. There was a brisk wind, but at least it wasn't raining. She turned to me. What is it, Cat? I know you would not ask if it were not important. I took a deep breath, trying to force myself to say what was impossible to say. Your Grace, you warned me before, I said, and then paused. I did, Cat. Is that why you wish to speak with me? Your Grace... I, I do not wish anyone to be hurt by this. Tell me, Cat, if it is what I think it is, there are other voices whispering, so do not fear to speak. It all rushed out. Your Grace, I have seen the Queen with Thomas Culpepper. I think they are lovers. She nodded, not looking particularly surprised. What makes you say that, Cat? I told her about what I had seen telling her everything. It's always when they think they are alone, and the first two times were very late. All the other ladies were asleep. I see, and it has always been you who has seen them. I thought for a moment. I believe so, Your Grace, and I am frightened. If I am thought to be complicit in this, my punishment will be severe. I will never see my children again, or will. At this thought, the tears sprang into my eyes. I started to think, to really think, about the danger I could be in. I started to shake. Catherine Willoughby patted me vigorously on the back. Stop crying now. Like me, you are half Spanish and you will be brave. I sniffed a bit, but then took a deep breath and stared at her. So, what should I do? Can you help me? Catherine thought a minute. Let's go through this. The first time you saw them, they weren't aware of you. I nodded. And the third time, they weren't aware of you. Yes, that's true, I said. So the only time you were seen was when you passed Culpepper on the stairs. Yes, and it was only briefly. Catherine suddenly laughed. What you must do, Cat, is to erase these events from your memory. With the exception of when Culpepper saw you, they didn't happen. As for that time, you did not think to question it. You were not aware of the time. You saw someone going to her chamber. That means nothing. I looked unconvinced. But Lady Rochford has seen me and she may talk. Catherine shook her head. No, she will not talk. She has too much to lose. The one danger is if she tries to enlist you to help in this illicit affair. She suspects you know, so she may try to involve you further. Now, if I were to tell my husband, he might ask you to continue with this. 
in the hope of gathering some evidence against the Queen. I cried out, oh no, I couldn't do that. Catherine Willoughby patted me reassuringly. Don't worry, I will not tell him. I have no desire myself to be mixed up in all of this, but we must get you away, Cat. As soon as you are no longer with the Queen, your name will be easily forgotten. Catherine told me that she had servants going back to Grimsthorpe Castle to prepare for the royal party's return. I was to go with them and later returned to London with one of the messengers that the Suffolks sent regularly between their different homes. What will I tell Queen Catherine? I asked. She will not be best pleased. Catherine thought a moment and clapped her hands together. Yes, we will tell her that you have gone down with the plague and are isolating yourself in York. She would not wish to visit you in that case. Even if she did, the king would prevent her. Catherine told me to return to the Queen's chambers for the rest of the day. Around the late afternoon, I was to pre pretend to feel feverish and retire for the evening. I should then make my way to the southern city gate at dawn and wait for the party from Grimesthorpe. I would know them by the colours they wore, the Suffolk livery of silver and yellow. That afternoon, Queen Catherine was wildly merry. The Duke and Duchess of Suffolk were in attendance, Thomas Culpepper, Lady Rochford and many other courtiers. King Henry, however, was absent, possibly still sending messages to the Scottish King. My music got faster and faster and still the Queen wanted to dance. She picked up her blue silk skirts so that everyone could see her dainty ankles as she stepped from one man's arms to another. Her face was rosy with the exertion, framed by a few strands of golden blonde hair. She was the centre of all attention, whether admiring or not. I wondered what would become of her. Would she be able to continue her affair without discovery? Would she still be queen by Christmas? She was so pretty and so joyful. I tried to fix that memory of her in my mind. I think I knew already that she had doomed herself and all who loved her.